You've worked on lived for such a long time in you. Not to avoid McCarthy. No, no. <laughs> no. It's been because the work's been there. Yes, this sort of really. Mm. Yes, really, because the work's been uh, in Europe. Mm. I like living on this side of the Atlantic very much, but I like living in America too. I'm not a, a refugee, either politically or emotionally, from my country. No. I'm uh, neither very uh, hot about nationalistically inclined, as I hate that in anybody. I don't feel that way, but I'm very happy in America. But it happens that America is not as happy with me as I am with it. On March 15, 1955, Orson Welles premiered as Lord Montdrago in the British omnibus horror film, Three Cases of Murder. The film consisted of three stories. Welles appeared in the one titled after his character. Ten days later, he premiered in the French historical epic film, Napoleon. He had a small part as Sir Hudson Lowe. Then on April 2nd, Wells appeared for BBC TV's network in the first of a six-part series entitled Orson Welles' Sketchbook. I hope you haven't gathered from the title of this that you're in for a televised art exhibit. The, the sketchbook part of it, frankly, is just a prop. A prop is a stage turn. It's an abbreviation of the expression stage property. Anything that you may see up on a stage besides the actor and the scenery is likely to be a prop. For example, Yorick's skull is a prop, and uh, the Romeo's vial of poison, and the telephone and dial M for murder, they're all props. And they're props in real life. When we're self-conscious, we put our hands to our neckties and light a cigarette, all that sort of thing. In other words, a prop is just what it means in the dictionary. It's something to prop ourselves with. It's a, to, to, it's, it's a crutch, something to lean on. And so the sketchbook is a, is exactly that. It's a prop. Something for me to turn to when I lose the thread of what I'm talking about and something for you to look at besides my face, which ought to come as a nice break in the horrid monotony. I remember the first night I was ever in Hollywood. I, I would have been very grateful indeed for a prop like the sketchbook because I did lose the thread. I, I was speaking... After dinner speaking, I'd been introduced as a great after-dinner speaker. I don't know quite why, because I'm not, but I had been, and this was a great Hollywood dinner. Every star I'd ever seen in my life, I was tremendously impressed. There they all were, and a lot of other grand people besides, Maharajas and all kinds of title folk, and I'd been called upon. Of course, being very frightened and very eager to please, I started a funny story which I'd heard that day and I'd gone on for a while when it dawned on me that I'd forgotten how it ended. I, I, I continued with the story and I hoped that somehow I'd find, find an ending, somehow be able to invent one and the people were all looking very eagerly waiting for the finish because they knew that although the story was very boring it must be boring for a purpose. Obviously, it was boring because the end was going to be so tremendously amusing. They often looked at me eagerly, and I continued and continued, and I thought, how in heaven's name can I get out of this thing? I could pretend to faint or drop dead or rush out and yell fire. I continued to invent comical finishes that elicited no titters whatsoever quietly and secretly praying to myself to heaven. And then my prayer was granted. 
Ever since then, I've, I've been a great believer in, in the efficacy of prayer because just as I'd given up hope, just as I was wondering how I could get out of this situation, the walls started to shake, the chandelier fell down from the ceiling onto the table, the people jumped out of the table. This was California, remember. It was an earthquake. So I was, I was saved. My Hollywood career was saved by an earthquake. And I can't pretend that my drawings are any sort of earthquake, but they'll have to stand in for that sort of distraction. Written and presented by Wells, the 15-minute episodes present as commentaries on a range of subjects. The six episodes were called The Early Days, Critics, The Police, People I Miss, War of the Worlds, and Bullfighting. Later that year, Wells took part in another series of shorts called Around the World with Orson Wells. In this same New Bedford, there stands a whaleman's chapel, and few are the fishermen shortly bound for the Indian Ocean or Pacific who fail to visit there. Between June 16th and July 9th, 1955, at the Duke of York's Theatre in London, Wells staged a two-act version of Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Wells used minimal design. The stage was bare, the props were minimal, and the actors, which included Christopher Lee, Joan Plowright, Kenneth Williams, Patrick McGowan, and Gordon Jackson, wore street clothes. Brooms were used for oars, and a stick was used for a telescope. The actors provided the action, and the audience's imagination provided the ocean, costumes, and the whale. Wells filmed approximately 75 minutes of the production, hoping to sell it to Omnibus for a TV film, but he was disappointed in the result. The next year, old friend John Huston cast Wells as Father Mapple in his 1956 film adaptation of Moby Dick, which starred Gregory Peck. The sin of Jonah was in his disobedience of the command of God. He found it a hard command. And it was, shipmates, for all the things that God would have us do are hard. If we would obey God, we must disobey ourselves. But Jonah still further flouts at God by seeking to flee from him. Jonah thinks that a ship made by men will carry him into countries where God does not reign. He prowls among the shipping like a vile burglar hastening to cross the seas. And as he comes aboard, the sailors mark him. The ship puts out. But soon the sea rebels. It will not bear the wicked burden. A dreadful storm comes up. The ship is like to break. The bosun calls all hands to lighten her. Boxes, bales, and jars are clattering overboard. The wind is shrieking, the men are yelling, 
I fear the Lord, cries Jonah, the God of heaven who hath made the sea and the dry land. Again, the sailors mark him. And wretched Jonah cries out to him to cast him overboard, for he knew that for his sake this great tempest was upon him. Now behold, Jonah, taken up as an anchor and dropped into the sea into the dreadful jaws awaiting him. And the great whale shoots to all his ivory teeth like so many white bolts upon his prison. And Jonah cries unto the Lord out of the fish's belly. But observe his prayer, shipmates. He doesn't weep and wail. He feels his punishment is just. He leaves deliverance to God. And even out of the belly of hell, grounded upon the ocean's utmost bones, God heard him when he cried. And God spake unto the whale, and from the shuddering cold and blackness of the deep, the whale breached into the sun and vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. And Jonah, bruised and beaten, his ears like two seashells, still multitudinously murmuring of the ocean. Jonah did the Almighty's bidding. And what was that, shipmates? To preach the truth in the face of falsehood. No, shipmates, woe to him who seeks to pour oil on the troubled waters when God has brewed him into a gale. Yea, woe to him who, as the pilot Paul has it, while preaching to others, is himself a castaway. Our delight is to him who against the proud gods and commodores of this earth stands forth his own inexorable self, who destroys all sin, though we pluck it out from under the robes of senators and judges. And eternal delight shall be his, who coming to lay him down can say, Oh, Father, mortal or immortal, here I die. I have striven to be thine more than to be this world's or mine own. Yet this is nothing. I leave eternity to thee. For what is man that he should live out the lifetime of his God? The thing about Moby Dick, I was so lucky, is that I had a, an extraordinary cast of actors, you know. They're all stars now, practically everybody. Who was in it? Kenneth Williams, Joan Plowright, the first role, really. She was extraordinary in it. As Pip, Patrick McGowan, who uh, should have been, I think, one of the biggest actors of this generation, if TV hadn't grabbed him. He was Starbuck, and he was tremendous. The sort of small part, dancer actors, were very great, too, and everybody loved the show. 
and consented to rehearse about 14 hours a day for four weeks instead of eight hours a day. And it's a show that simply couldn't be put on in America yeah. with, the the, by, with the union, with the equity people watching the clock and abiding by their little book, unless you had uh, two months or something, because it's technically for them to learn, you know, to do the storm at sea and to look, make you believe that the whole theater was tossing on the waves and so on. It was very athletic and acrobatic yeah. and choreographed and very, very intricately and rehearsed in great detail and great precision and a superb gang of people, team. Yeah. Had a lot of very, very real help from everybody in it. And I just refused to do it in America for a long time because I couldn't imagine duplicating it. And then I was weak and let them in. I knew it couldn't succeed because they they didn't have the conditions necessary. No. Well, they didn't it. have the director. or, or Well, I don't know. Play. They just didn't have the conditions. I can't criticize it because I didn't see it. He always thought his father should play. And I, that's why I think Walter Houston was a great actor, but not an Ahab. I think John's much better for it. He would have been. He had a yeah, big, yeah, bigger yeah, size. Yes. Yeah. And loonier quality. You know, there's yeah. something terribly sane about Walter. And there's something loony about John as an actor, you know, he's, yeah. he, which is great in the right thing. Wells later cast John Huston as director Jake Hannaford in The Other Side of the Wind. The film wouldn't be completed and released until 2018, more than 33 years after Orson's death. Wells modeled Jake Hannaford on his good friend Ernest Hemingway. I was enormously fond of him as a man, too, because the thing you never get from his books was his humor. Yes. There's hardly a word of humor in a Hemingway book because he's so tense and solemn and dedicated to what is true and good and all that. Mm. But when he relaxed, he was riotously funny. Mm. And that was the level that I loved about him. And I, I enjoyed being with him. I used to go out and keep him company when he went duck shooting in Venice in the autumns. I have many strange memories of him like that. Mm. And I was enormously fond of him. But as an artist, there are very few important writers, with the exception of Novikov, who uh, have not been influenced to some degree by him. I think it's impossible to write the same and yet, as we did before he wrote. And yet, do you not sense now that he's become, over the past ten years, an old-fashioned sort of figure? He's come back again, I think. Yeah. My hunch is, I don't know in England, of course, because these things vary in different countries. In America, he was in total eclipse for the last ten years. But the sun is rising again, critically for him, a little bit. Mm. Yeah. He's been dead long enough. I think it's mainly true, isn't it, that writers do go into a uh, total eclipse right after their death. Yes. I wonder why that is, but it seems to be true. He was ultimately, of course, a tragic figure, wasn't he? I mean, in that his end was complete counterpoint to all that he'd stood for and written about. He was sick, he was sick. But he did talk about suicide, you know. His father killed himself with a gun in the same way. Yes. And he talked to me about it several times. Really? In a sort of obsessive way. Yes. But he was a sick man. He was not well mentally, you know. Yes. He's not to be judged as himself. In other words, he didn't... The Hemingway we are talking about did not choose his death. He might have, but he wasn't that man.